Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Oh, it is July the 7th, morning here in Northern California, back from a beautiful almost week-long vacation with my bride celebrating her birthday, and technically I'm still on vacation, but I have a small window here, knock out the show. Coming out of a really boring mid-Ohio, nothing to talk about. Oh, my Lord. Come on, y'all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, believe it or not, uh, there's a couple topics coming out of the mid-Ohio, the Honda Indy 200, that uh, a lot of folks want to talk about. So, <clears throat> as always, your questions shape and inform the show. And so, that's exactly what we're going to do here. Use your submissions. Going to get rolling here in just a second. Try and do about an hour with our weekly show here. Could this go over just a little bit? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah, circumstances might dictate we go slightly over. And uh, once I'm done here, going to jump on the phone with our pal Scott McLaughlin, winner of the Honda race in his Chevy. going to talk about uh, not only that victory, but uh, just the year to date and looking forward and what he's uh, hoping to accomplish. So, Really not enough time to put out a call for questions, but Scott and I usually don't struggle to uh, have good old fun conversations. So I want to say thanks once again to all of you. Uh, yeah, a lot of questions. Big thanks to Jerry Suddeth who puts all this together for me now. And don't be surprised if you hear questions being asked that sound similar to yours. We got a whole bunch that are, are pretty darn close to the same. So Jerry just chose... Uh, the ones that he thought gave us the best flow for the episode with Andretti being a prime topic uh, for discussion. Also want to say a big, big thanks to Cooper Tires, who've supported the show for five years now, a long time. Uh, our friends at the Justice Brothers had a great opportunity to catch up with Ed Justice Jr. for about an hour yesterday on the drive home. And then also, as always, torontomotorsports.com. So big thanks to all of you. Uh, I know whether it is buying Cooper tires, uh, if you have a need for automotive chemicals or lubricants, thinking of just the Justice Brothers, and also TorontoMotorsports.com for your racing memorabilia desires. And I say that because I get feedback from all three uh, saying, hey, we really do appreciate uh, your listeners, the listener group that you have, the passionate folks uh, at the Day, and also the times that all of y'all do on a somewhat frequent basis reaching out saying hey by the way uh here's a photo of the new cooper tires i put on my car truck or like i said something you might have bought from a uh, a lubricant or additive or whatever from uh, justice brothers and then our pals at torontomotorsports.com so it is just this isn't a plug it's just more of a thank you because they support us support the show with the hope of being a part of your lives. And it's just really appreciated to hear from them and y'all that that dynamic is working. Um, why don't I also say uh, just quickly here, I won't be at the next race at Toronto, but I do get back on the road for Iowa. And I think I will be at pretty much every IndyCar race to close the season. So I think once the year is done, I will have missed three maybe four at most, but uh, I think Gateway is the only big conflict that I have uh, from Iowa on. But other than that, cannot wait to get back out and hopefully do some Prude meetups 
and just enjoy y'all because y'all really do bring so much energy and just good vibes and good everything to myself and to my wife. So appreciate y'all. Uh, on the topic of the Prude Day, before we get going here, mention that if you want to join, I'm not a member, uh, but 100 plus pretty awesome folks who have banded together and just enjoy racing, talking about it. I think they use Discord as the primary uh, app to do that. Uh, just send an email and they will welcome you in with a couple of within a couple of days. It is Prude, P-R-U-E-D-A-Y, R-O-C-K-S, Prude Rocks at gmail.com and they'll get you taken care of all right a little bit of a music bed here want to get uh, the show rolling as quickly as we can because we do have a fair amount of ground to cover and before i do that let me take another sip of coffee uh, and off we go by the way i i read i think i'm up to about 450 pages uh in mark lanigan singer now late singer unfortunately of the screaming trees queens of the stone age and also a solo artist, one of the craziest lives ever lived. That's what I did for most of vacation. Sit in a chair, read a book, and just be still. And if you aren't aware of Mark Lanigan or the fact that he has an autobiography, if you like to read insane autobiographies, uh, this might be tops of all I've ever read. So there you go. A little plug for a book that's just insane. Uh, why don't we go to our pal Colin Young? How you doing, Colin? Hope I get to see you later this year at Laguna Seca. It's been a little while. It says, I was at the uh, IMSA race uh, at Mo Sport. He says, the cars have these amazing LED panels on them. To tell fans what position each car is in really makes it easier to keep track of the race. Someone should mention this to Jay Fry. <sighs> you know, I do need to ring Jay catch up on a variety of things and I, I appreciate that jerry has us opening the show with a little bit of absurdity but also reality uh will we get not only led panels back but knowing that it might end up being four five six years however many years between when the last ones failed and went away and a new car will hopefully be coming has technology come far enough for indycar to find a uh a new led panel solution or lcd panel or oled solution who knows to get this informational system back on the cars one question get a lot is well imsa has them on their cars duh why don't they just use them as it was described the speeds of the indy cars and at some of the tracks the harmonic vibrations going on through the chassis is what really wreaked havoc with the former LED panels. So I think the idea of just using a plug-and-play um, off-the-shelf solution, as they did in the past, and as IMSA does right now, might have them a little bit spooked. So uh, we'll see. But why don't we uh, <coughs> why don't we shift to a topic here? James Lau says, MP, shall we dedicate the entire hour to Andretti Autosport? Oh, oh, oh going to jump into your questions here we'll just preface it by saying <sighs> sunday's outburst sunday's mass pooping of the bed uh, among the andretti drivers i think devlin de francesco of the four is the only one to be absolved of any of the silliness um big and bad obviously for what took place 
Not a surprise, though. So let's get into that a little bit. Pal Kevin Pinkston says, MP, welcome back. Please help, help me to understand what is going on with Rossi. He edges his teammate off the road, then the next lap uses his car as a bulldozer and pushes him off the track. Then again with the bulldozer routine on Devlin Francesco. He says, I want to cheer for him as a fan, but it's hard to watch. Also says, best to you and your bride. Thanks, Kev. <clears throat> the first instance of running Groschon wide on the exit of the keyhole, that looked like dickish behavior. The second instance following lap with Groschon, the one that uh, led Romain to really lose it, uh, not only lose it in terms of going off track, but also just uh, lose it inside the car. That did look like what Alexander said it was, which was his car under steering. Um, I know that might seem like a quaint thing to back up and not trying to absolve anyone or add anything unnecessarily, take away anything necessarily in terms of blame or whatever else. But it did look like Rossi understeered. And unfortunately, the car that was there trying to pass him around the outside was his angry teammate who was then hit and knocked off the road and whose race fell apart. The barging through DeFrancesco also, I think that fit a bit of a quick fire pattern. What is that pattern? <laughs> it reminds me of an old story and famous story from the shop that I worked at and grew up in my first real pro racing shop, Pfeiffer Ridge racing at Sears point, AKA Sonoma raceway. Might've heard me mention the team a few times before ran a lot of SCCA club and national stuff, uh, USF 2000, uh, from Atlantic and whatnot. So I'd learned a ton there, grew up there, had some main people who, among the mechanics and crew chief types were instrumental in my life, career, everything else. Um, with Rossi's race, it reminded me of a great story about the uh, two lead mechanics, chief mechanics there at Five Ridge Racing, Ricardo Panero and John Ennick. John, who, by the way, was part of uh, IndyCar teams that I worked on. Um, phenomenal guy but also a very irreverent DGAF kind of dude. Just doesn't give a bleep. Uh, back in the day, our very strict boss, very strict guy, Bob Lesnett, said, hey, whatever it was, important race weekend, new client coming in, whatever, whatever, y'all need to be here at whatever time in the morning, Friday morning for whatever race event uh, at Sears Point, probably 7 a.m., something like that. Well, and this was just before I'd started, but they went out partying uh, as they always did. And as I soon, uh, joined in on and got roped into. And so I can guarantee you, they were at minimum very hungover and didn't get to bed until an hour or two before they were supposed to get to the shop. Uh, Ricardo, I think woke up first and it was seven thirty, eight o'clock. This is back before cell phones y'all. So, uh, no real super easy way to directly connect with people. Ricardo woke up, like I said, seven thirty, eight o'clock, knowing that they had blown it, uh, got Enoch up, 
got themselves together in very, very bad shape. And I th- Enik was the one who said, let's go get some breakfast. To which Ricardo said, are you crazy? Lesnet's going to kill us. And uh, Enik said, look, we're already an hour late. Does it really matter if we're an hour and a half late? And so off they went and had breakfast. And <laughs> if nothing else, put some food in their stomach, so maybe to uh, soak up some of the remaining alcohol and got to the track and lesnet just exploded and uh asked why they were so late and uh basically enic just as he normally not giving a bleep said hey we figured we're already gonna get chewed out we may as well get chewed out with some uh, breakfast in our stomachs so uh there you go and lesnet was just he couldn't there was no response just totally befuddled um that's what came to mind with rossi's race hey ran the driver that i don't like who's my teammate off the track once uh then not really intending to but hey we kind of came together at the same spot and knocked him off the track well i know that's going to be perceived as uh bad bad no matter what caused it understeer or not uh he already knew that he was uh in uh deep trouble and things are going to be bad and i think at that point uh, again it's just I'm guessing, but you just think of how sequence of events play out. I think after that, I think probably just the thought of, Hey, you know, uh, who really cares if I, I knock the rookie out of the way to get through and make contact with him. I'm already in hot water. Who cares if it's a few more degrees? Um, that's my guess. Uh, it's just such a, unfortunate thing to see but also not unpredictable and we'll get into some of that here before we close this whole andretti thread but if you think about what took place on sunday with the andretti team three of the four drivers uh well all four drivers were actually involved in contact i don't believe devlin hit anybody within his team i don't think colton again i could I could be misremembering. I don't think Colton hit anybody. I know Colton obviously got hit by Groschon and run off the road. Um, But if you think of how this happened, all in the same race, among four drivers, this is the only team in the paddock with three cars or more where this could happen. I'll get to that in just a sec. I want to get through some of your questions, but I will circle back on that probably to close because that is the bigger thing here. When I say not a surprise that it was this team, there's a specific reason why. Let's jump into the next question here from our pal Mitsuki Matsura. It says, hello, Marshall Son and Dreddy Autosport had a rough weekend. Do you think Roman is happy with how this year has gone so far? Considering the results and his relationship with the teammates, especially Rossi, also, do you think uh, the unfriendly relationship between Rossi and Romain spoiled the atmosphere that was there when Ryan Hunter Ray and Hinch were part of the team? Also says, I hope you had a wonderful time during your vacation. Thank you so much, uh, Matsuda-san. Really do appreciate you. Always sitting in really nice stuff. Um, all right, a couple things here to unpack. I know that in, was it a silly season piece or some other thing that I wrote uh, before vacation, that the Rossi and Groschamp situation was not happy or positive. Uh, I don't know if that had really gotten out too much and actually debated whether to share that 
but I realize that, to be honest, it's just become such a known thing in the paddock that it's never going to stay completely silent if it had been beforehand. Um, but I, I do think about that stuff, and I realize, look, this is not going to get better. These two aren't going to become friends, and so there's no need to pretend the situation isn't what it is. Did that influence what happened? I think so. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But you ask, do I think Roma is happy with the results? I'd have to say no. Uh, knowing how competitively minded he is, knowing how like hyper, hyper competitive he is, you look at the championship, you look at where he is sitting right now, there is nothing that speaks to a driver that would be happy. He's currently 14th uh, behind Connor Daly and ahead of Graham Rahal. Uh, Connor's had a very good year, not a crazy good year, but a very good year, and Graham's had a terrible season. And so if you look at where he is within the Andretti depth chart, he's third out of four drivers. And the fourth, Devlin DeFrancesco, is not someone that you would expect to be ahead of anybody as a rookie. Just wouldn't expect it. Absolutely would not expect that whatsoever. And so with him sitting third among the three veteran drivers, also, you know, if you look at points-wise, it's not like he's a crazy amount behind Colton, who's P10, and Rossi, who was P8. But other than that one shining second place at Long Beach... No podiums anywhere else this year. And what if I'm having to look at just past the halfway point of where he was last year as a rookie? That would also make it somewhat hard to say he's got to be super, super happy because, you know, he's uh, somebody who had a second place already. Um, hadn't really done a ton more. Uh, but is at a very similar place to where he was championship-wise. I know he didn't do the ovals, but I'm just saying if you think about where he was among road and street courses last year at roughly this point in time, it's really not too dissimilar. Um, I look at where he finished last year in the championship, finished 15th, um, and that's minus double points at Indy in both Texas rounds, right? So that's a lot of points to leave off the table, and yet – finish as high as 15th. It's currently 12th, right? <sighs> Hasn't missed Indy, got granted. Didn't have a great day at Indy, but at least got those double points. Just getting to you know the underlying thing here where you go, did he actually have a better season going last year as a rookie with a much smaller and under-resourced team like Dale Coyne? You could make that argument. So if I'm him... I am not in a very, very happy place. Then you have the discord within the team between himself and Rossi and that coming to a head last weekend. Um, yeah, if, if knowing his personality is it, I think I do and others do from what we've seen demonstrated. I got to believe Mitsuki that uh, that is a guy who is burning to, if not get another podium, get a win just so things start to feel normal. I think things feel very abnormal for him right now. 
and I don't know if he feels, I don't know if that's something he's equated to being a reality here uh, in IndyCar. I think his belief was that things would be better, not in a weird place of struggling to get the big results often do, if not almost always due to the team or the car that he had in F1. Um, it feels like similar dynamics going on here. So I think that's probably a very uncomfortable place for him to be. Um, as for the atmosphere within the team, the being spoiled uh, of what's going on between Rossi and Romain, Hunter Ray was, even if he wasn't as competitive as he was in his final season or two, know a lot of times he had super bad luck but even if hunter ray after his 14th year or 15th year with andretti wasn't the same crazy threat to win or be on the podium like he was for all those other years he was still really darn good there's a need for some sort of shake up there um whether it was a different engineer um being moved to just a different car like swapping crews like there's just something that needed to change there if he was going to stay and hopefully get uh, more from himself and, and the team to get more from themselves. But what we're seeing right now is the direct effect of losing their longtime leader among the drivers, but also a leader within the team, someone that everybody listened to and respected, also was looked up to, by the younger drivers, right? Kind of dad. And also, I know that he and Rossi became crazy close. So, and that was just evident the whole time. Uh, yes, they might have been rivals. Rossi might not be the most extroverted person. Nonetheless, he and Hunter Ray were super tight. I think everything that we are witnessing right now, and I'll take away the I think, I know that everything we're witnessing right now is some sort of byproduct of Hunter Ray not being there. Because he is the type to, you know, they call him Captain America. Great, there's a lot of reasons behind that, but there's some other aspects to that too that really are important. His sense of team and team building, of holding others accountable, and being that rock really being that person who all the other drivers look up to. I mean, look, Colton Herta, faster than Ryan Hunter Ray. Okay, no question. Uh, but does he? did he ever look at Hunter Ray in some sort of dismissive way, second-tier way? Oh, okay, cool. You know, you're the veteran. You've been around for a long time and appreciate you. But, uh, hey, move over, old man. I'm the boss. There was never that dynamic between Colton and Hunter Ray. Uh utmost respect to him and that guy was the bedrock within the drivers and among the drivers with the team um this is a person who really i would say kept a lot of things in order in place and moving forward in a positive way you unplug that guy and have no defined leader within the driver ranks You've got a new guy coming in in Romain Grosjean who is highly talented but also known for being more of his own man than, say, being, you know, 
he doesn't have a Andretti Autosport tattoo across his chest as his emblem to show the world that he is all about the team, selfless, um, et cetera, et cetera. Rossi uh, has never been 100% all team. Uh, Colton Herta, no disrespect, never been 100% all team. It's very much a group for many years, even with Hunter Ray there, very much a case. And this is the point I said I was going to circle back to at the end, but uh, I'll just circle back to it now. This is a situation where if you look at a Chip Ganassi racing or a Team Penske, while there are standouts within those multi-car driver programs, those are teams that are very much about the team. The drivers are part of that. Yes, Dixon has been the best over this long duration with Ganassi, but even while there, Dario Franchitti won multiple championships. Pelot just won a championship. Uh, everybody wants to be the best within the team, but they are truly team first. Chip Ganassi strikes fear into all of his drivers because he does not view them as prima donnas or special. He views them as employees. He loves them and supports them and encourages them and does a lot of super positive things, but there is no question as to who is the boss, who owns the cars, who is in charge. There is someone that all of Ganassi's drivers over the years fear of effing up around, running into one another, uh, being overly aggressive with one another. I know that we just had an incident at Road America between Erickson and Pelot, bit of a nothing burger. But nonetheless, there is a fear at all times that the guy who owns everything is going to tear a chunk out of you if you get into that inter create inter-team problems. Team Penske, same way. Uh, all three of Penske's current drivers and previous drivers live in constant fear. And I mean this, this is not being oversold. Live in constant fear of disappointing him, saying the wrong thing, uh, doing anything to make Roger unhappy, embarrassed, or mad. And then on top of that, you have Tim Sindrick, the person who runs everything for Roger, who reminds me a bit of the Showtime character Dexter. <laughs> There's a bit of a, a Dexter vibe about Sindrick, where you go, oh man, um, we might end up getting dumped off the boat uh, into the Miami Bay here. If, uh, if we get called in after running into one another and making asses of ourselves and the team, like a real scary, like, oh boy, uh, we don't even want to venture there. Those things are very real. And all of those drivers absolutely dread the idea of doing something in any capacity to draw the rage or ire of their bosses and especially doing something among each other to make that happen. Uh, taking one another out, running into each other, being dickish, whatever. Can any of you th picture a scenario where any one of the four Ganassi drivers rode a teammate off into the dirt, off track at the exit of the keyhole, like Rossi did 
with Groschon. I can't. Not a single one. The only one who might be able to get away with it a little bit is Dixon, just because he's been there for 20-plus years. But even then, that's not a Dixon move. What about Team Penske? Can you imagine any of those three doing that to one another? I cannot. Because they know the minute that they came to the pits, uh, yes, between Roger and them feeling like the biggest failures in the world for disappointing dad, uh, then fearing Dexter coming after them. I can't picture that happening at either of those big teams. And Dreddy, I absolutely can. I would not be surprised if this happens again before the season's over. And there's a reason why. It's because it's been a bit of a rudderless ship for a long time. You think about Ganassi, you think about Penske, you think about the person at top or the people at the top, and everyone under them on the org chart, drivers included, fall in line, toe the line, bow their head, know exactly where they stand in terms of power and authority, and do not get that confused by acting out on track against a teammate. Who's that person at Andretti? It's not the team owner. It's not his second in command, third in command, fourth in command. There isn't that person. And so what you have is Team Penske. They were called Penske Racing for the longest time. I forget the exact year where they made the change, but there was a willful change in the team name to go from Penske Racing, which had been around for decades, to Team Penske, all to signify who they are, how they approach racing, how they behave, how they perform, etc., etc. Chip Ganassi Racing just always stayed CGR, uh, but same thing. These are real teams with a culture where each individual is held accountable and expected to behave as a member of the team, even when it extends into on-track situations. Of course, on rare occasion, there are little dust-ups, again, like we saw at Road America with the Ganassi side, but by and large, that is not something they will tolerate, and folks behave accordingly. Can't think of the Andretti organization in the same way, because Michael is not that type of person at the top. Uh, admittedly, as a driver, he's never someone who really liked or wanted teammates. I mean, he did have his dad as a teammate for a while. Things got on well there, but there are still some dust-ups there. But this is not a, a, a team culture. This is not a we-are-one culture. We're seeing that expressed on track. I know that Rossi is the one who's leaving, I know that he was asked, hey, are you acting this way because you're on the way out? He said, no. I don't think that he's intentionally causing problems to try and ruin the place, damage his teammates in the championship. I don't believe any of that stuff. But I do believe what we're witnessing is a long-standing situation where without someone like a Ryan Hunter Ray to be kind of the the standard of excellence that all others hold themselves to the big brother, the mediator, the one to get in your ass. If you're acting out like in the absence of Hunter Ray, I think we're just seeing that 
what's left? It's a bunch of individuals. Uh, Herta in 20 and 2021, a couple situations with Rossi where clearly he demonstrated uh, who's the boss, who's number one in the team, drove him very, very hard. And that's him expressing his youthful views of himself, and he was successful in those expressions. Was there someone at the top to intervene and say, hey, look, a-hole, that's not how we do things? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, Who is that person to wrangle everybody and create a true unified team? Again, I'm not trying to speak ill of anybody here, but that was never Michael's reputation in IndyCar as a great teammate, as someone who is team first, make the team best, and then I will benefit from it. Uh, The reputation was always 100% me first. What do we have now? We have a team that since I was looking, looking it up, since unification, since 2008, going to close this uh, Mitsuki here on this and then move on. Since 2008, unification, there have been 14 IndyCar champions crowned. 13 of those been taken by Chip Ganassi Racing or Team Penske. It's either Team Penske or Chip Ganassi Racing. 13 out of those 14. The one outlier, the one championship that hasn't belonged to those two organizations, Andretti Autosport. When was that? 10 years ago. The dawn of the new Delara DW12 turbocharged era. Ryan Hunter Ray won that title. They've come close a couple times since. Have not won. That to me is the absolute marker of a team's composition and strength. Not Indy 500 wins. Indy 500s are great, but there's a bit of randomness there. It's one race. 500 miles, but one race. What can you do as an organization across all 14, 16, 17, 8, whatever the number is? Tell me about the composition of your organization over a full season. That, to me, is really and truly the only measure of a team's success. And when you can say that over the last 14 seasons, you have one championship, and it came a decade ago, I mean, if you want to talk about how long ago this was, uh, what, Obama? (laughs) Obama was president, right? I mean, that feels like a million years ago. That's the last time they won a championship. So if you want to talk about who's built for success, drivers have come and gone through all three of these organizations. Some of them have been constants, but again, there's been plenty of change. Engineers, mechanics, there's been a lot of change. Even so, you look at the consistency of Penske and Ganassi and then have to ask yourself, what is it about the Andretti team? Because it certainly has not been for a lack of driving talent or engineering talent or mechanical talent. You come back to composition. You come back to chemistry. (sighs) What happened at Mid-Ohio? Sad. But should not come as a surprise. This is an expression of where this team's been at for a really long time. It's come to an even bigger head. Minus Hunter Ray there to be the dad. 
sadly he's been well for andretti's sake he's been hired by ganassi as a extra driver and hopefully he'll be doing some regular driving for them next year and beyond but who do you bring in because just trying to fix things with the same people i don't know if that gets you anywhere that they haven't been at least for a decade uh, which is not competitive uh, enough to win a championship uh andy bauer so would not have been entertained i uh, would not have entertained this thought before what happened at mid ohio but is there any chance andretti parks rossi for the rest of the season at some point and brings kirkwood over early seems ludicrous uh, but when my son presented that idea last week eh, maybe i don't think it's so crazy after all so i think there's sponsor commitments and other barriers that make it unlikely uh, Rossi's currently seventh in the championship as Andretti's highest driver, but man, uh, you say, of course, uh, may not be that he's necessarily the primary issue. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of things here towards the end, Andy, that, uh, all, all line up to no. I mean, if at Toronto, he dives down the inside, Rossi dives down the inside of Herta or Groschon or whatever, and blow wipes them out. Um, do I think some serious action gets taken? Probably. After what happened at Mid-Ohio? No. Um, that was clearly bad, as we know. Uh, total Three Stooges uh, sketch. But beyond that, he is their top performing driver at the moment. Um, I don't want to fully claim this, but it seems like all the, the bad luck, bad juju, bad everything, bad decisions, whatever, that blighted Rossi's 2020 and 2021 feels a little bit like that's been passed on to Herta. Um, I mean, this kid was truly the golden child, and now uh, they just cannot buy a break. He's making errors. They're making errors. He's getting hit. Just uh, the, the Rossi funk has clearly been passed on. Um, but I don't think that there's anything necessarily at the moment, Andy, that would warrant uh, any kind of change in terms of who's driving that 27 Honda for the rest of the year. Um, I would say that there's nothing positive to be gained by this happening again or taking this somewhat dismissive approach to teammates um, at future races that would carry with him to Air McLaren SP would be positive, right? Hey, what, what if I can beat up um, the Andretti team on my way out and help uh mclaren when i get there and so hey andretti's you know down in the dirt and we're we're kicking butt what what if i'm a secret agent doing that um andretti autosport is already behind air mclaren sp in every regard this year uh, in every single way uh the andretti team was by and large uncompetitive at the indy 500 i know rossi stormed through the field so again very impressive as an individual in a five-car team, but everyone else is more or less nowhere uh, in terms of being able to go for a win. Aaron McLaren SP certainly was 
quick like a bunny and crazy competitive at Indy. Uh, you look at where uh, Pato is in the standings. You look at where Felix is in the standings. I know Felix just had a terrible race through no fault of his own, but um, they were they were fourth and eighth in the championship going into mid-Ohio. Uh, both had engine failures, were among the first to fall out. So obviously they've fallen in the championship, but there's no reason uh, to say that because Rossi and now Herta are ahead of Felix that somehow the Andretti team is better than Air McLaren SP. Uh, the main thing I would say, IndyCar's had the big three for a really long time. That big three has been the same three teams. It's been Team Penske, Chip Ganassi, and Andretti Autosport. Formerly Andretti Green Racing, but Andretti, Ganassi, Penske. I'm perfectly fine with not expanding that to the big four to add Air McLaren SP. I would actually say, you know, let's keep it as it is. Who's Who belongs in the big three that's been hailed for 15-plus years? It's moving dirty out. I, I no longer see them as a member of the big three. We don't know what we're going to get from them weekend to weekend. Uh, they have won one race this year, so full credit to them. I know that Pato's only won one race. You could say, well, why would you move one in and one out? Um, I know that Pato is going to vie for a championship just as he did last year. Felix and that seven-car team with some changes made there, reinvigorated Rosenquist, uh, that team is operating at a, or that entry is operating at a crazy high level. Um, Air McLaren SP is a two-car team is vastly better than Andretti is right now as a four-car team. Even if, let's let's just delete DeFrancesco as a rookie, right? Again, low expectations for a rookie, so take him out. Cannot tell you what's going on with Colton. Uh, this year's been a disaster compared to his other seasons. Rossi has rediscovered his mojo. Just drove like an ass, though. He's eighth. Good, but... Uh, almost a hundred points out from championship lead. That would be a pretty crazy thing to imagine him completely overcoming. Uh, Herta would have to go on an epic winning spree as well. He's even, he's more than a hundred points back. Uh, Groschon is not coming anywhere near a championship this year. He's just too far back for that to happen. Um, but I could absolutely see Pato winning a title. I could see Felix minus engine problems, uh, being a top seven, top six, top seven guy by the end of the year. Andretti's just fallen, period. Uh, no longer in the big three as far as I see it. So I just mentioned these things because although the team is struggling, although they have a lot to figure out to get better, uh, and losing Rossi for next year is not necessarily a positive for them, Right. He brings a lot to the team to make them good. Uh, forget the personality stuff and a little bit of weirdness there. Just as a guy who contributes on the engineering side and then obviously is driving very well uh, across the majority of the championship, he brings a lot. The kid that's coming in, I love, we love Kyle Kirkwood. Um, we're seeing things from him that we just have never seen before. Uh, Road to Indy, this kid was rock solid. 
made very few errors and again just looked like clean crisp going straight to the top we're getting to the point to where the kids had everything but the pace car this year and again love them love the kid but can't deny the fact that getting through a race without he hasn't had a lot of car to car contact this year but just solo error after solo error being surprised by this caught out by that no he's a rookie but if we were to leave st pete where he was super quick obviously the race didn't go exactly how he wanted but he really impressed i think everybody if we were to say hey man we're just going to pass a midway point of the season where do you think kyle's going to be among the 26-ish full-time entries or full-time drivers and say, yeah, there'd only be two drivers behind him. Uh, I don't think any of us would have thought that was going to be real, but um, that 10th place at Long Beach feels like it was a lifetime ago. Since then, best finish, best finish, 17th place. Uh, there've been a number of crap, like crashed out of roughly half of the races so far. Um, just sharing these things because you go, okay, well, so there's chemistry issues among the drivers at Andretti. Rossi's going to be gone. That should make Groshaw happier. Kirkwood's a pretty nice kid and, you know, can be pretty mellow. He is hyper competitive, but at the same time, clearly he's not coming in least as for where he is right now with everything worked out uh by no means at the top of his game he's going to have a lot to learn he's also going to want to establish himself and earn respect and he's going to want to be top dog um i don't know if i see i don't know if i see things necessarily getting super rosy and better and happy and all that because of this driver change that's coming up because I think our our pal, Mr. Kirkwood, still has a lot to figure out. And does Kyle become team leader? No, he absolutely does not. So where does that ship get a captain? If it's not Michael Andretti, who's running seven different race teams and trying to own nine and whatever else, and there's no super veteran within the drivers uh, right now, or sorry, to come here in 2023 to kind of fill in um who's the captain now who's the captain in the future i don't know so man this is complex stuff i don't want to say that this is cars drivers tires engines fuel uh those are the things that seem like they're the primary items we're the one sport in the world where I shouldn't say the one, but the one big popular sport in the world that uses large teams, but the majority of the team doesn't actually compete in the primary sport that takes place. Giant teams, 15, 20 plus people, but only one person is in charge of representing that team uh, from a competitive standpoint. And the, it's the, we're the only sport with this big, really popular sport with a tool that we use a vehicle to compete and there's a weird business model around it where by and large all the teams have sponsors 
right? <laughs> hey, would you sponsor my kid? Uh, they are going to go on a camping trip. Like it's this weird, like, Hey, would you buy girl scouts cook girl scout cookies or some other things to help fundraise for my child to go do a thing? Like our business models, not too far away from that. That's really strange. We have all these people that we bring in, but it's, they're all in support of this machine and the one driver who pilots it to compete with others and all the strange stuff that we do, but it all seems to be vehicle and driver centric. All the crew focused on that car and driver, the sponsors and everything all focused on that car and driver. And there's 26 of them full time and they all come together and compete. But it's so much more than that. <laughs> it's so much more than that. Coming back to that 14 championship, 14 seasons, 14 championships, 13 of them going to Penske and Ganassi, only one to Andretti. I'm telling you, that is the main takeaway from Mid-Ohio. What you saw at Mid-Ohio was the expression of a team that has a lot of cars and has had a lot of sponsors and a lot of everything. And everyone's focused on the drivers and whatever else, but who's focused. What infrastructure is there at the absolute top to then make everything within that team and organization function at an elite championship winning level. It's why in the other sports you may enjoy, you see on a regular basis every year, Head coach here, fired. General manager, fired. Offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, assistant coaches, fired. Promoted, demoted, constant movement. Where do those things happen? It's rarely at the ones that were just in the playoffs and that went far into the playoffs. It's usually in the, the bottom feeders that are constantly rotating everything in the hope of finding something that works. But it's also in the ones that get close perennially they're always close but just can't get over the edge where you go okay that coach has been amazing but we need to try something different uh coordinators this that general managers you whatever level team managers managing directors there just comes a point where you go you cannot have that many opportunities to win something big to then come up short and be considered a member of the big three without saying we're doing something wrong. And it's not a year by year. Oh, we hope we'll get better next year. Oh boy. Bad luck. Bad luck. There comes a point where there there's nothing left externally to point at. So these are the nuances having been a team member, having been a crew member, having run teams, some of them that did well, some that were total failures. That was a hundred percent my fault for being terrible at running them, making very bad decisions. Um, I've been on both sides of this at fault doing terrible jobs, uh, not running things correctly, making very bad decisions, not reacting quick enough. Um, it's stuff like this that fascinates me, but I hope, uh, if you didn't already know, this is all people and personalities and strengths and weaknesses being put under a big magnifying glass for everyone to see. Ganassi has been in positions 
over the last, we'll say, 14 years, where although it was a slight dip, they were not championship material. This year, they're not looking like championship material. They're looking just a whisker of speed off of Penske almost everywhere they go but they're not looking like they have what it takes to win the championship unless they find something that allows Dixon to win, that allows Pelot to win. Uh, I don't expect Johnson to win unless it's on an oval somehow, but uh, Erickson to get another win. Um, they're off just a tiny bit. Do I expect Chip now or at the end of the season or Mike Hole now or at the end of the season say, well, we came really close. We hope next year is going to be better. Absolutely not. Here's a team that's just won two consecutive championships that is being beaten on a regular basis by Team Penske to their great surprise, right? If you think of New Garden's three wins, you think of Powers' win, you now think of the two McLaughlin wins. There's not a lot of other races that have been won by others, right? Ganassi has one with Erickson. McLaren has one with Pato. Andretti has one with Colton. Out of the nine races, Penske has six. Do you think the Ganassi folks are just going to say, ah, came close, but you know, we'll give it another go next year doing things the same way? I can guarantee you there will be engineering changes, there will be other changes. Uh, whether it's folks that a change could be not working with the team anymore could mean being moved into other engineering positions other than race engineering, other people being added to the team behind the scenes for the variety of support engineering positions. Um, I guarantee you there will be changes of substance to react to this. And we're only at the halfway point of the season, but that's how they work. What would you say, what would you expect for an Andretti and the changes they might make? And I'm not saying anyone on their engineering team needs to go. I'm not saying anything like that. Just saying, how do you react? Well, uh, historically, there hasn't been much of a strong reaction when they've come up short. Will they make something that is significant, that will change their fortunes going into next season? I don't know. I hope they do, but this is a, a situation for sure where we're watching changes or lack of changes, culture, lack of culture, a lot of really interesting things behind the scenes, like we see with other major teams that were once proud but have struggled to try and get back. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Uh, why don't we move on here? Oh, I don't know if I answered your question all the way. Um, yeah, no chance I can see Kirkwood being moved over early. Uh, yeah, Rossi would be staying there for sure. Um, I'm going to try and answer Austin Merrill's question while replying to Scott McLaughlin here. Uh, sorry there. All right. Uh, at what point does IndyCar step in to park Rossi or Groshaw? You mentioned at Barber uh, that they had uh, that they'd set an example and gotten away from them. You say at a time where F1 and IMSA are proud of their on-track product, uh, does any car have to step in? 
I mean, if this happens at the next race, without a doubt, Austin, but this coming to a head twice in the same race within two laps, knowing that both, um, I think both took themselves out, both damaged themselves in terms of race results. My guess is IndyCar looked at that from race control and said, all right, you paid your own penalty. No need for us to step in here. Happens again, regardless of whether you take yourselves out and damage yourselves from a points hall standpoint, we are absolutely going to step in and make sure that uh, y'all fall in line with us. Uh, Dan Michael Nata. Hey, Dan, I don't know if I've gotten a question from you before. If not, I appreciate uh, you jumping in here and joining us. So, good to have you back. Can you imagine you took off a race that was so crazy with drama? So I don't know if you're happy about that or wished you were available and online. I'd be willing to guess that you were glad to be away. Well, you, you actually are correct on both fronts here. Um, <laughs> we'll mention that... Uh, did have a little bit of a joke. Uh, well, I'll leave that aside. I'll, maybe I'll share that one another time. Um, wasn't fully sure if I was going to watch the race. My wife was asleep, so I was like, okay, uh, I can watch this with the volume turned way the heck down uh, in our hotel room. And I was very happy that I did not have to cover it, uh, not being there in person than having to cover it. So that was great. But at the same time, there are so many things going on that normally I am taking notes, uh, whether it's just in a Word document or whatever else during a race about things that I need to cover in a race report, doing a follow-up column, a sidebar story, uh, my post-race cool-down lap column, uh, or something like that. And it was just, yeah, we were starting to ping off the rev limiter here pretty, pretty early with Felix's motor blowing up, his anger. I loved seeing the anger, right? I mean, if you want to know how passionate is he about he is about this stuff, like that told you he kicked the car afterwards. He was so mad. Um, you think about Pato's problems, fuel pump issue uh, within the fuel tank. Um, then you think about the Andretti drivers doing their Three Stooges routine. You think about uh, two of the, the Foyt cars having, all the Foyt cars, I should say, having problems uh the sponsorship issues there and you know we can run through a variety of other things pitting Groshan a lap early having him pit one lap before the end of the race to get him out of the car and try and get him clear of pit lane and reporters and whatever else knowing that that would be right something that everybody tried to jump on to and it looked like Nate Ryan from NBC Sports was able to ask him some questions before uh one of the dirty PR reps whisked him away in that video um yeah it's a big old mess and I will admit that my mind was, was running through a lot of things to write about, talk about, but also then having to fight myself and say, hey, dumbass, this is the thing you're getting away from to get a bit of a break. And granted, this trip was primarily for my wife. It's meant to be. And I say that, I don't say that like it wasn't for me. I just mean like wanting to celebrate her and get away is that was the all-important thing for me the side benefit was I'd be doing nothing as well and recharging my batteries achieved to perfection. But at the same time, after the race, without a doubt, my brain was, was running wild about all the angles to talk about, write about and whatever else. And I didn't take a single note, didn't write any of it down. I opened my laptop 
for five minutes on like the third day we were there and that was it <laughs> it was just for one little uh, bill pay thing i had to do that's all set up easily uh to do that there instead of through my phone it's the only time i opened my laptop didn't write anything didn't make any notes but i did have to fight myself uh after the race until we left of like this is normally where i kick in and do my thing and so happy to have not had to have done that big thanks to a uh, racers mark lendenning who i think's done a great job in my absence uh so <sighs> there we go but we're kind of expressing all this stuff here and getting a lot of this stuff out so that's all good uh and thanks for asking dan hopefully uh, we'll get more questions in from you uh chris albrecht as we move away uh into plenty of of other quick topics marshall what team what do teams actually learn from a track walk i think teams already know the track layout have a setup prepared and the drivers know the track what more do they learn that benefits them for a race weekend uh, don't know where you live, Chris, but I know as we were driving home yesterday from Southern California, uh, came across a stretch of highway that I travel once or twice a year. I think as we got somewhat closer to home, uh, was going in a particular route that don't go across that often, uh, but I've gone across it many times throughout my life and was amazed to find that there was a huge dip, like almost like a ramp uh, on this stretch of road. And it blew me away. Like, whoa, I don't know what has happened here over the last six to eight, nine months, but something major has developed in the road that has changed it. That's exactly why teams do track walks. Uh, could be... I don't know if you live in a place with extreme sun and heat all year or snow, but either of those things change track surface, change road surface, you know, the streets you drive in and around wherever you live or on the way to work or home, whatever it might be. Those two extremes cause change. And at most tracks we go to, they get some or both, or it could be tons and tons of rain. Uh, things that change soil and the firmness of the soil beneath the track. Um, that's what they're going out and looking for, looking for new bumps, looking for curbing. If there's been any changes there, I mean, changes as in the track has changed the curbing, but if they have, they'll spot that as well. But is something more worn down than it was last year? Is something cracked or, or broken? Is there a jagged, edge of a curb somewhere that you normally drive over where you go aha hey do not drive over that you could puncture a tire uh, or could damage you know the underside of the car if you were to bounce over that uh, it's undulations it's looking at has a track become more worn in a certain area right just there's been a lot of laps put on this track wherever it is over the last year is does it feel like there's less grip is there more sheen on that portion of the track than you recall from last year well maybe i need to make a note that i can't really go wide at this corner to try and go around someone or set someone up leaving that corner because there's no longer the grip for my left front or right front tire and okay or again who knows has the the track patched an area made some tried to make some improvements filling in an area or added like i said something where you go that's either increased grip in an area or removed grip that's what they do. It's monotonous. 
sometimes you really have to fight some of the veteran drivers to do it. Heck, sometimes the younger drivers as well. But this is your opportunity to go out and basically be a surveyor and make a detailed note of where things have changed for the better or worse from the previous year. And that will inform setup decisions. Hey, I know that coming out of this corner where we normally have a lot of traction available, not so much. This is a very important corner. So maybe I think differently about springing there or who knows. Uh, and also just, again, helps inform the drivers on uh, the best places to play. going to take another quick sip here. Uh, Vinny Taibi, how you doing, Vinny? Marshall, hope everything's doing well. It is. I actually can't wait to end this podcast. Um, not for bad reasons, just uh, for this is about the only thing I'm doing that might be considered vaguely like work. Uh, he says, this is a question I had from May, but forgot to submit it. Everyone seems surprised when Herta's engine let go during the first qualifying attempt. Usually any signs that an engine is on its way out, like lower oil pressure, compression, horsepower, etc. Um, I mean, the compression is certainly one of the metrics you'd look at. Uh, engines, unless they come out of the car and go back and then are returned uh, to be used again, unchanged, really are not something that would be subjected to dyno runs to compare horsepower You know, while it's still in use. Um, oil pressure is certainly something you would be monitoring to see if that's reducing it all as things become a little bit more used, a little bit more slack. But other than something dynamic like that, something that would be obvious, Vinny, like some of those things, like, again, an oil pressure drop, uh, compression drop, um, I don't know if there's going to be anything crazy that jumps out uh, through telemetry that would inform Team Chevy and Ilmore or Honda Performance Development that, hey, this motor is, is getting tired and we're not quite at the limit yet of what we want to do for a changing it out mileage-wise, um, but, hey, we should be fine. IndyCar doesn't have a policy of letting their engine suppliers just do the regular teardowns and whatnot while an engine is still in service, still being used, unless, again, there's some sort of issue that might be had that they want to see if they can fix and keep using uh, without getting a, a engine, potential engine change penalty. But I don't think there's anything that really jumps out here. Just a case of, wow, these parts and pieces have been spinning and combusting and doing a lot of things for 2,000 plus miles. We are getting closer to that change out point. Um, what we saw last weekend with uh, Felix's motor, Chevy told Racer that, yeah, high mileage motor, straight up failure, surprised us, uh, but also... When do we normally see engine failures? It's usually once we're getting close to that uh, change-out point. That's honestly, we're when we talk about reliability and, and building reliability into the motors, that's the thing that everyone's chasing. It's not getting through that first 1,000 miles or even the second 1,000 miles. It's the, hey, we're within one race or so of, of mileaging this motor out we're getting into the true kind of limit of where we're wanting to run this mileage wise. Uh, can we successfully get to that threshold without popping a motor? Um, yeah, a little bit of a surprise. 
but it's going to happen a couple times a year. It's just the way things work. Uh, John Bailey, say any updates in the funding woes at AJ Foyt? Haven't had a chance to reach out and inquire. I knew that going into Mid Ohio, um, amazing lady Marianne behind Sexton Properties was likely to be the sponsor on Kyle Kirkwood's car. That turned out to be the case. We saw that Rocket was with Tatiana, um, but do not expect her to be back unless something drastic changes ASAP. Um, Not even sure if the team going into mid-Ohio was fully expecting the car to be back after mid-Ohio. So I would imagine we will see Sexton Properties on the 14 car for Kirkwood. Uh, If not for the rest of the year, maybe the majority of the year. Again, who knows if something changes with Rocket, we'll have to see. But uh, I think think Sexton's probably going to be plugged in there for a little while. Bigger question for me is what happens leaving um, leaving this season? Will it just be a case of a talented? Don't know if I'm talking about race-winning, championship-winning talent yet. We'll see. But uh, is it just strictly a case of a talented young driver like a Benjamin Peterson, Pedersen, uh, who brings you know family-slash-family-related funding? Is it just a case of Benjamin stepping into the 14 and his funding relieving its sponsorship woes going forward? Uh, or can the team find a true sponsor, uh, one that is a you know major company, major corporation, to step in and replace Rocket in that capacity? Think Dalton Kelt's going to be back. He expects to be back. They expect to have him back. That money is solid. That's family money. That can keep going for all the years that they want there, but... It was nice seeing the Foyt team have the ability there for a pretty decent period of time with ABC Supply and then Rocket being able to hire drivers. Question here is, are they going to, out of pure necessity, John, fall back into the person buying rides in order to keep the team afloat situation and... Will we be speaking about the same kind of potential for the team if that ends up becoming uh, their reality? I I don't know. I I hope it isn't the case. I'd rather hear that they're going to be running three cars next year, Benjamin in in the 11 car, and they have found sponsorship. I don't think it's, we're not talking Sexton properties for a full five, six million dollar season, but I would love to hear that they found a budget from sponsors to though go and hire whomever it is that interests them for the 14 car. Uh, That'd be the thing I'd love to hear. I just don't know how realistic that is. Uh, July 7th, knowing that most of those major sponsorship deals uh, are well underway uh, everywhere else for new money to come in through major teams. Uh, Jamie Dolinger. How you doing, Jamie? This is during qualifying. This is the first time I saw congestion due to the number of cars on track almost to the point that I think at Mid-Ohio, anything over 10 cars in a group is a bit too much. Said it was mentioned before. Uh, Yes, did write a story a little while ago. IndyCar was considering a new model, a qualifying model, growing car counts, maybe splitting it to three groups. Uh, He said, would 
Uh, could you share any recent conversations on the potential model of it really happening? I haven't had any follow-ups there, Jamie, so I would have to ask for sure. Um, you also mentioned going to three groups of nine uh, drivers would certainly add more coverage, chance for more exposure on TV for the series as well, and potential sponsors. I mean, it would lengthen the broadcast. Um, I don't know if it would add more exposure car-wise, though, uh, sponsor-wise, because in theory you'd be knocking some out in every round. So no, don't know if that lends any additional. I mean, you'd have more time on TV for IndyCar, but at least at the moment, I believe that's all exclusive on Peacock, which is not generating any kind of meaningful numbers. That's not a dig against Peacocks. Just look, they're not putting up, you know, big numbers for folks watching Peacock for qualifying of the other practice sessions. So I don't think there's anything really there, Jamie, in terms of value to the series or teams and sponsors from going to three rounds. But if it does lead to more intense qualifying sessions and less interference and we just get to see pure demonstrations of speed, less blockage, less traffic, I think there might be something there. Uh, Paul Hirsch said, I was watching Jimmy Johnson at Mid-Ohio in the keyhole. He's never able to plant the car, it seemed. Uh, and the car seemed to be really loose in the exit, nearly kicking up dust. Is this his driving style or struggling with a setup or something else? I think what we're just seeing here, Paul, is even though he's a year and a half into his IndyCar career, it just does not look like Jimmy has connected with the car at many places, most places that are road and street courses. Um been a tough year for him i know that he just finished 16th i know that that just shot him up from next to last among the full-time drivers to i think 21st in the standing so that's great but we also have to be honest it's a lot of attrition during the race that took a lot of cars off track and therefore moved him up so that's not picking on him that's just saying that it's not like he passed his way to 16th on raw pace um main thing that i've seen going on with jimmy that appears to still be going on is he just does not look like he knows what the car is telling him what the car is wanting to do as he gets closer to the limit uh, it's a case of the car maybe being on top of the track compared to just fully dug into the track because he's pushing it so hard feeling every little nuance the car is telling him and uh uh, then able to extract maximum performance from it. Um, it just does not look like they are bonded as one. And so I think what you're talking about here is just a case of um, Jimmy looking a little bit off compared to the others. Uh, Brian Dywert, how you doing? It says, MP, welcome back from your vacation. My longstanding question is the following. Unless an accident is near the entrance to the pits, why does any car close the pits when a yellow happens? Closing the pit seems to cause more problems than it solves. So this is a big old topic here of not just this one, but cautions in general coming out of Mid-Ohio. Probably try and write about it early next week or something like that when I'm back. Um, this is what they choose to do. As to why, I guess I can try and get an answer out of them, but it's not one of those things where you get 
a lot of clarity. There's just two options. Close it, leave it open. Why do you go with either? Not saying we don't have answers as to the merits of both. Just saying as why would a series choose to do one over the other? This is what they've chosen and makes sense to them. Uh, I know the, the quote argument, pros and cons, whatever. Um, you often hear about, well, we don't want to advantage anybody or disadvantage somebody based on who just got in. And then there's a yellow and they close it and, you know, Hey, we'd rather just make, make it bad for everybody or good for everybody or however things play out. I know that there's lack of advantage slash fairness in mind of like, well, we'll close it and then try and allow everybody to do an orderly pitting at the same time. Then you have last weekend where you go, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, (laughs) if a car is in a position that is deemed to be a threat, right? Hey, you're in a place off track where it'd be easy for someone to spin off and hit you. Uh, if you're in the car, could that injure you? Yes. Uh, could the car injure them if they went off there? Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to shut things down. Full caution, full caution, Jesus, full caution, full course. And we're going to go solve the problem. Well, if you decide that there is a situation that requires a full course caution, everybody stop, everybody slow down. We're no longer competing. We're just circulating at a a lower rate of speed and all the pit stuff. We'll we'll get to that in a moment, but we just want to get everything under control because of this caution that exists. There's a cautionary situation on track. If you decide you can wait a lap to let everybody try and circle through the pits, basically before you throw the yellow, well, then that would not be something that is truly worthy of a full course caution. Correct. I mean, let's trade the word caution for emergency. If you deem something that has happened is an emergency, would you not react to that as if it were an emergency? And if you choose to not react to something as an emergency, would that not suggest ain't an emergency well what happens when you say hey there's an emergency everybody slow down stop racing right we're not competing but those drivers are by and large allowed except for that little section where the emergency is taking place to charge super hard because that happened too right there wasn't a global slowdown and everyone farting around super slow and right No, folks raced hard as hell to get into the pits because to, I think, everyone's surprise, stayed open, right? Everybody on pit lane, all the strategists could see. Car deep off track, talking about, what, Calderon. This also happened earlier with Kirkwood, too, but I think Calderon, right? Hey, this is going to be the instigation of an emergency, so, hey, drivers who might be close to the pits, uh, there could be a, a, an emergency declared here any second. Charge back. Be safe going by the emergency, but charge back to the pits if you're so, anywhere 
halfway around the lap, get in, get in, get in before they close the pits. That's normal, right? Try and, and beat race administration before they declare that emergency that changes the flow of the race. But then you go, oh, okay, we're still going here and we're still going here and we're still going here. And basically a full lap, I believe it was, transpires before the formal calling of an emergency happens in terms of pit lane being closed. So to me, this is just a, it's two things. This is what I'll write about next week. Whatever happened to the local yellows? You know, someone in the, the racer mailbag wrote in about that recently. Uh, and you know, we're asking why don't we, don't they? And all I could say was like, again, this is IndyCar's choice. I'm not saying it's valid, but this is the way they go. If something happens, they go full course yellow. They dispatch trucks, AMR safety team, get it, all that. That's amazing. But does every situation warrant that? Are there any scenarios, uh, especially with the new LED track-based marshalling system where you could not have a true local yellow, a slowdown zone? Hey, everybody, uh, 5,000 RPM, second gear, whatever that is, you know, pick a speed. Hey, everybody. Uh, and again, with all the radio communications available from teams to the drivers, from race control to the drivers, hey, we have a, again, I'll just keep using the word because I think it's the mindset you have to take. We have an emergency at turn eight. As you enter turn seven, as you cross, as you see the yellow EM marshalling flagging display, you see that panel blinking or whatever solid yellow. The minute you come up to that, engage, we need you to downshift to second gear, all of you, whatever the speed is and whatever gear, or I don't know, you put on your pit, pit lane speed limiter. So everyone's running guaranteed at the same speed, starting from here to there. And it's a slow zone, basically. And once you get past that, that section, undo that and you can start racing again once you get to this marker, right? I mean, these are not impossible things to say. And hey, if we do need to dispatch a truck or a something or whatever, hey, is it possible to do that with a local yellow? And I'm not talking local like a very small stretch of track, something that's expansive enough to allow wherever the safety vehicles are located uh, closest to, to come out, get the thing going, get the car going and let it run off. Um, there has to be a way to administer races with local yellows where safety crews, local track workers, uh, can tend to that emergency and then allow the race to resume. We used to do that. That has gone away. Everything is a full course yellow. Now. Um, I think this just comes back to the greater question. Hey, I get if the leader is within four corners of the pits, and a car went off, had an emergency, uh, three quarters away from the pits. I can understand not wanting to, you know, if pit lane was open and we're getting close to pit sequence, I can understand maybe giving yourself a couple of extra beats to let that car get through the last couple of corners, the leader to get in and pit. If that's the thing, right? I get that. That's a little grace period. And if we're talking about a car that's had a huge crash body work and parts strewn all over the place. Look to me, 
their grades of emergencies. I don't think that you leave the pits open at all. I think you shut everything down because the full focus should be on attending uh, to that driver's needs. But if it's clear that someone spun off, maybe gone into the barriers a little bit, but they're fine, they're moving around, there's no fires, no, just like, look, okay, got a car to get out of the way or to refire and get going again. Um, can we make sure that the driver, I'm sorry, the leader who maybe hasn't pitted yet while most others have and isn't far away from the pits gets in, gets out, then we shut everything down. We've basically preserved the race before this emergency uh, to, to resume after the emergency. I'm good with that. But again, we're talking a couple corners away, not far away from being able to get into the pits. And again, you've just preserved things without ruining anybody's race. I get that. You wait a lap? Well, to me, I don't know if you then have a real emergency. Um, I think that's why so many folks are just not pleased right now with how things went down. So I know that there might, there might be a question or two here uh, below the red line of death uh, that, uh, our pal Jerry put together here. And I think that might've been one of them. Um, so anyways, yeah, Gabe Argenta, I think, uh, yeah, uh, you great rant here, similar things, uh, said, uh, and also, yeah, some other similar topics explored as I'm looking through this. Um, let's get to your last couple of questions here. Um, Gary Chin say, I heard during the broadcast about map settings. Can you explain how many settings there are and what does the, what do the settings do? Um, I mean, it depends how many settings, uh, engine mapping settings that, uh, manufacturer wants to set up for, uh, their customers. Also, they work individually with the teams and drivers to come up with some things, but in general, these are all things about how the engine performs. Uh, in many cases, it's how much fuel or how much fuel timing is thrown at the motor or isn't thrown at the motor. Uh, there are settings related to throttle response, right? We have uh, drive-by-wire throttle. So there's no longer a physical cable connecting the throttle pedal to um, the valve opening up, all the fun stuff that happens in the intake plenum. So how the engine responds based on a driver's usage of the throttle with their foot is something that can be mapped, Gary. Some drivers, and I'm just giving you extreme, some drivers might want a very immediate, abrupt engine response. The minute they start to get into the throttle, apply some force to the throttle, get some travel within that throttle pedal, they might want everything, the full party, all the power, all the torque, all the everything to be instantly available. Others might say, hey, you know what? Uh, let's actually not go full bore when I'm getting into the early part of the throttle travel. I don't want this explosion behind me. You might go, well, wouldn't you want all power at all times? Yeah, not necessarily, right? Street courses tend not to have a lot of grip, some pretty sharp turns as well. You hit someone with all the power all at once. The minute they crack open the throttle, you get a lot of wheel spin, probably a spin, probably a crash. So in the electronic response of how the, uh, the motor that opens the, uh, the throttle on the engine side, adjusting how that reacts to input on the actual throttle pedal, that's really probably the biggest thing terms of 
individuality in tailoring things for sure, Gary. Uh, each driver has different desires, and I'm not talking full season, right? I want it this way everywhere. It changed from race to race. could change from session to session uh, about how aggressively they want power uh, to come in or not. Also, how the motor responds coming off throttle. It's another big area, too, of how it behaves, how it performs, how it can help decelerate the car, turn the car a little bit. There's all kinds of stuff uh, that's fun there. But in terms of engine power uh, and whatnot, that's also another area in terms of map settings, of having full bore maximum everything that uses every available pony and all the fuel possible to dump into the motor. Then there are some other settings that dial that back progressively. So that's where you get some, uh, some pretty interesting tuning opportunities. This is an area that I've written about. We've spoken about before Gary, where Honda was the king of this for many years. And that has changed. Chevy is caught up and if not caught up past them in this regard. And, uh, <laughs> Having won seven of nine races this year, you'd have to say Team Chevy is definitely doing some pretty impressive things. Uh, Steve Sell. Hello, MP. Can you tell me why leading up to the race, cars are on track is referred to as practice? But the day of the race when cars are on track is referred to as warm-up. Even after warming up the cars, uh, might end up sitting for hours before the actual racing. Yeah, I, I wouldn't confuse warming up the the quote cars or engines as having a, anything to do with warm up sessions uh, the vehicles are warmed up many times you know before every session uh, that they go out they are warmed up in the paddock um practice is just that it's practice there's there's no formal reason for the session meaning okay we're gonna do this thing to achieve qualifying order for example uh it's open practice uh, free practice do what you please so that's what they're doing they are practicing and what are they doing in practice well they're doing like football players and basketball players and everyone else does in their practice sessions they're trying to get into a rhythm find the most effective everything way around the track uh, setup you name it all in the name of honing and refining things during this free practice session where they can do whatever they want with that time to get ready for the race. The warm-up, it's exactly that. Uh, it is the final drill, right? Like you would do, uh, you might call it dress rehearsal if this were, I don't know, a play or something else uh, or a musical act. Um, it's just that. It's their last chance to prepare. So it's called warming up, warming up for the race. And so that is where they do go through their, their final dress rehearsal. Uh, what they believe will be the chassis setup for the race. Often we will see pit stops performed where the crew gets to warm up for the first time. They're not allowed to do live pit stops, uh, meaning you know everyone out and doing that full bore during the practice sessions or qualifying. So uh, as for why they're called what they're called, I think, Steve, it's because it's the most accurate representation of what takes place. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to a final question here. Thank you all for buckling in here for this longer dissertation on team and construction and management and chemistry and all kinds of stuff and the other things too. Uh, John Keller, you say, MP, have you ever been in a spot as one reporter found himself last weekend being asked to delete a video uh, they shot of 
Michael Andretti and Alexander Rossi's dad, Peter, in a heated conversation. How would you handle the situation? Circle back to, actually, I don't know if I'm circling back, but uh, I guess, yeah, maybe I'm circling back to a conversation I had with a friend this morning who told me about that. I, I say that because, again, I've been on vacation, y'all. I, like, I really, I think I tweeted once or twice over six or seven days, and even then I shouldn't have done that. Um, haven't followed up on any of this kind of stuff. So I heard about it this morning, was heard the threat from the Andretti team was, if you don't delete it, uh, you'll never get anything from us again. You'll never speak to anyone again. Again, I've heard that second hand, third hand, however many hands. So I can't tell you if that's accurate, John. I can't tell you if the video was deleted. I haven't looked for it again. If it's there, awesome, you know, whatever. I don't know. Haven't, <laughs> I truly checked out. Um, if it was deleted, I would feel bad for the person who chose to delete it because the minute you give that kind of authority to someone, then everyone starts asking for that domain and authority over you. Um, have I had requests to delete videos, photos, stories? Absolutely, man. Constantly. <laughs> um, the amount of texts, it's usually text. The amount of texts that I get. Hey, could you take that story down? It's a crazy thing, John. Just saying, put yourself in a, put yourself in a, a very different pair of shoes. I don't know what you do for a living, John, or any of the rest of you who are listening. I don't know what y'all do for a living. I can tell you that I never thought of this, uh, coming to this new role in media 15 years ago, whatever it was, but I f found that indeed folks think your work, my work, anybody's work in the media is semi-permanent. <laughs> it's like an etch-a-sketch. Hey, I don't like the thing you wrote. I don't like how I sound in the quotes I gave you in the thing you wrote or in the video uh, that you captured or in the photo that you took. Could you treat it like an etch-a-sketch? I'm hoping most of you know what an etch-a-sketch is, a toy that I had as a kid. Could you just kind of shake this and make it all go away? It's a really bizarre thing. Like, hi, uh, I appreciate the pasta that you just made me at your restaurant, but I, I don't like it. Could you please not just throw mine away, but just remove all pasta from this restaurant? Um, <laughs> what? Hey, I don't like that song that you wrote. Could you delete your entire album? What? It is bizarre. And yet... Since we live in a largely digital world now, we're print media, right? It used to be back in the day. Yeah, see, everything was print. There's no deleting. There was never a, a there was an ask for a correction, right? Hey, you, I don't. This was wrong. Or hey, I want to send in a rebuttal. That was a thing. That was a very common thing. Hey, you wrote a story that said we were this and that and the other, and I'm going to send in a rebuttal, and you better print it, darn it, that disputes everything you said okay um but we do live in a time where folks think well uh, it's all digital so it can all go away so just talking from a story standpoint oh that comes in all the time hi could you please change this to that you go could sure what's the reason why you try and parse out what's going on 
is there something wrong? Is there something inaccurate? Of course, you'll always fix that. But you also often find that there's some sort of agenda. And someone, again, you never know the reasons why, but again, it's totally common. Hey, could you take this down? No. Could you throw away all your work, please? Uh, you throw away yours, then I'll throw away mine. How's that? Uh, but no. Um, so that's the first part. As for delete a video, take down a video, um, delete photos, whatever else. Yes. Get those to have gotten them. And so here's the general thing just to offer John, which, uh, I kind of opened with here on this topic. The minute you do that, the minute you show yourself willing to give someone control over your work product, who is not your boss, the minute that you allow them to take leverage over you, it won't stop. And I'm not saying it's going to be leverage that they pull frequently, but it's going to happen. It'll happen again and it'll happen again. And so if the threat is, if you don't take this down, you'll never hear, we'll never speak to anyone again. Uh, at no point in time, do you agree? Because if that's what they want to do, then that's their choice, but you cannot be beholden to folks making threats to you related to your work. Um, there's some, there's some gray areas, right? Hey, if big auto manufacturer X is a big sponsor of your media outlet or tire company, this or whatever that, and you've got something that a video or whatever that is disparaging to them, whether you got it fair trade or not standing there, listening to people having a heated conversation, MFing this or that, could there be commercial consideration taken into place? Oh, absolutely. I can tell you, I have, I would not even be able to count on all fingers, toes, 10 pairs of fingers and toes, John, the amount of times things have been taken down or altered or whatever as a result of corporate sponsor, this racing series, this or that, that has some sort of business relationship with an outlet I've worked for. Um, those requests are common and there's always some sort of business thing in the middle where you go, okay, um, is this valid? What's the reason? What are they saying? You know, is it a, Hey, you know, could you, could you, there, there's, a sentence in a quote from somebody who's a senior up at senior person at so-and-so from our company. And boy, uh, they reread the story or watched the video or the whatever. And you know, yeah, you got it. And they said everything to you and knew that they were speaking on the record, but in hindsight, wow, they just really think it's a bad look. Could you help us at all? Of course, those things happen totally common. It's just part of being sponsored by the same industry that you work in. Um, but when it comes to this stuff, uh, I won't wear you, wear you out with the story yet again, uh, telling it in full depth, but I had this happen last year with Romain Groschon, who said, if you report on me leaving and going from coin to Andretti, I won't speak with you. You'll never get an interview with me again, et cetera, et cetera. And threatened me. And I told him fine, best of luck. Uh, but this ain't how uh, this ain't that kind of party. Um, and he and I didn't speak. He and I have done zero stories together since then. And you know what? If that's the quote price that I pay, 
totally fine with that. I won't be threatened. I won't have someone else dictate my work unless they're my client, my boss, or otherwise. Uh, if they tell me yes or no, that's how I work. Someone else, not a chance. Granted, uh, Romaz decided we're now good and whatnot, and so awesome. But was I prepared to go the rest of his career without talking to the guy, without doing a story, without doing anything on him? Absolutely. Um, not going to have someone else uh, insert themselves uh, when they aren't my client, they aren't my boss, and you cannot let that happen. So I don't know if the video was deleted. I hope it wasn't. I haven't seen it. But yeah, uh, brother, these things happen all the time. Folks think that if you work in reporting, journalist, videographer, photographer, whatever else, that your work can just be deleted to their pleasure. And it's a bizarre concept because I can't really think of any other profession where folks believe that all they have to do is ask or that you can or would willfully destroy what you do for a living um, for whatever reason they think is valid. So um, if I were asked to do that, well, first of all, I don't know if anyone, I don't know if a team would come to me like that and say such things, but I can tell you the answer would be no. Um, if I was filming that uh, and they came up while it was being filmed and said, hi, please delete that, please, whatever else, um, I'd film that whole thing and I'd share the whole thing. And like, look, you want to come after me and, and make threats to me? Guess what? This isn't staying private. Uh, let's put this whole thing out. Let's show how much of an ass you're being. Um, I don't know if that was the result, but I hope it was of the person not bowing down and sharing the ridiculousness of uh, such a request. Person did not create the situation, is in a position of being a reporter who is meant to report. And since this is fair play in public, uh, you are asking someone to pretend reality doesn't exist, to ignore something that was seen by many, right, fans, you name it, looking down on pit lane while that's taking place or wherever it happened. Um, this is your problem. Don't pretend it's my problem and I'm a contributor to the problem. Uh, I'll, I'll share one little story here to close. 2008 Lime Rock American Le Mans Series race. I had noticed on the factory, they're all factory Acuras, the Andretti Green Racing Acura LMP2 car. Brand new at that event, they had brake shrouds uh, on the front and back of the car. But like you see in Formula One today with the big carbon fiber enclosures that go over the whole brake system, right? This is brand new. They'd never had them before. I was you know, really plugged into watching from race to race the technical changes with the cars. They weren't there before. They popped up at Lime Rock, standing behind the crowd barrier uh, at their at the team's tent with the tent opened uh, at the back where you could see in that's how i spotted them just with plain view with my own eyes saw that uh i don't know if i had my camera or went and got my camera but got my camera with its little zoom lens like any fan could and zoomed in and took photos of them and posted a story that whatever it was saying hey look Acura's doing something new and interesting here. Brake shrouds at the back, and I could see that they're in the front. Didn't really have a good picture of them, but took a picture there. 
any time if the cars were on pit lane with wheels coming on and off as they would you could easily take a photo of them as a credentialed ALMS photographer allowed to go over the wall. One of the very few uh, could take those there as well. Um, so just readily easy to see. Um, complete explosion. Complete explosion. They believed somehow that I had taken, quote, spy photos. I was supposed to do some sort of in-depth interview with Acura with a variety of their staff, HPD staff, about whatever stuff related to the car. And so somehow, again, timing of all this, they believed that I had somehow infringed upon a relationship, taken advantage of them somehow, had taken spy photos of this car, knowing that I was supposed to interview some of their senior program people that weekend as well. And I, no joke, uh, got this letter or email from Speed, Bobby Aiken, who was, I think, the number two at Speed Channel back then, saying he has just gotten the most explosive communication from Acura and Honda, that one of their people has taken spy shot of their car and trying to share their secrets with the world, and what in the hell? And Acura was a sponsor of whatever with the LMS broadcasts with Speed, right? And so I get the email from Bobby and then a call from Bobby and dude, what are you doing? You're killing me and you're killing them. And oh my God, they're screaming bloody murder and blah, 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 blah. And I'm, I, I, I'm remembering all this because just recently I found the email where I had to explain in two or three pages long of timelines and breakdowns and what happened at this time and this day and blah, 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 how we got to all this. Um, and ended up sending back photos of the exact same kind of thing of all the major sports cars from that event, all the little tech things that were different or new because there's a lot of changes back then. So the accurate photos of the brake shrouds, I'm like, that's not like super high tech or super secret. How do you keep that secret when, again, wheels are coming on and off the car at all times? Uh, plus, you can see this just walking by in the paddock. Um, I have a dozen other photos exactly like this from other cars or similar, so... Again, there's nothing spy photo or whatever else, but in that photo, because it was taken from 20 feet away, maybe however far the car was away from the crowd barriers beneath the tent, you crop in, right? And so that's where the whole, you somehow got, took spy photos. And I'm like, yeah, here's the original photo. And you see the full tent, <laughs> me standing well back behind the tent. Um, it was really clear that again, this wasn't a quote spy photo of me sneaking in to take any, take something I shouldn't have getting into the tent when no one was there, whatever, like it's just a fully made up nonsense thing, but they are screaming bloody murder. I'd done something totally wrong. Take this down, remove all of this. And I'm having to fight the whole time going, no, they are wrong. I'm sorry. I don't know why they're mistaken, but they are wrong. None of what they are saying has happened. I get a phone call from, I believe it was John Akeda. And I could be wrong uh, on who it was at the time, but he was like either president or VP of Acura, not Acura Motorsports, Acura. Huh, like truly like the number one or number two person for the entire automotive company. Got a voicemail. Um, and, and again, I didn't happen to cat see when he called whatever, got a voicemail. And, uh, this is a day or two later, but you know, hi, Mr. Pruitt, this is so-and-so from so-and-so, uh, would appreciate your phone call to discuss this matter and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, oh my God, <laughs> like what? 
um and called back got a, a reception person uh didn't end up going anywhere from there but it was like to that level brought all the way to basically the top tier top floor of acura motor company over a photo that i took that anybody could have taken but they were bound and determined to tell me that it was wrong and foul screaming bloody murder at bobby aiken to take the story down or we're going to you know take business we're going to do all kinds of things to punish you for doing something we feel that you have done that is wrong even though they were totally wrong in believing that i think i was on the losing end of that i think in the name of preserving business bobby uh, even though he wasn't in quote in charge the digital side of speed you know he's one of the two big bosses so what he says is certainly going to go I believe that got taken down I was read the, the proverbial riot act by my bosses and I'm going, what are you talking about? Nonetheless, leverage, power, money. They'll throw it all at you to get what they want. Uh, even whether it's valid or not. So I don't know what this reporter has experienced with that team. I'm sure I'll learn more as I get back to work here, but, uh, I sure hope they said no. I'm not taking anything down. I'm not changing anything. And if you want to take yourself away from me and any coverage and any whatever else, that's your choice, not mine. All right, y'all. Thanks again for the extended episode here. Indeed, lots to talk about. Uh, but I think we got through all of it. I'm uh, going to speak with our man, young Mr. McLaughlin here shortly. So I'll have that up as our guest show. And let's, as always, say a big thank you to you for everything you sent in to Cooper Tires the Justice Brothers in TorontoMotorsports.com.